Hallucinogen Persisting Perception Disorder, abbreviated as HPPD, is a non-psychotic disorder in which a person experiences persistent visual hallucinations or perceptual distortions after previous use with drugs, including, but not limited to, psychedelics, such as LSD. Some of these hallucinations and perceptual distortions include visual snow, dissociation, and altered motion perception. HPPD is rarely encountered in the clinical setting and its underlying mechanisms are poorly understood. More studies are likely to be needed in order to identify risk factors associated with it, as well as effective ways to manage it if psychedelic-assisted therapies wish to become more mainstream. Today, on the Psychedelic Frontiers podcast, we'll discuss what is currently known about hallucinogen-persisting perception disorder. My name is Ben Clayton, uh, and I'm studying for an integrated master's in natural sciences, specialising in neuroscience at the University of York. I'm the president of my university's Drug Science Society, and I'm the co-chair for the Drug Sciences Student Society Network. I'm also the creator and owner of this podcast. Today, I am once again joined by the fantastic Dr. Torsten Passy. Dr. Passy is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and is an expert in altered states of consciousness and psychedelic drugs. Torsten was part of the only systematic scientific investigation of more than 20 subjects claiming symptoms of HPPD, and the results have been published in a major neuroscience journal. He has also published the only comprehensive book on the subject of flashback phenomena such as HPPD, as after effects of hallucinogen ingestion, recreational or otherwise. Links to both of these can be found in the description of the podcast. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, welcome Ben and uh, all the audience. Lovely. So let's jump into it, Torsten. What is HPPD? What are the two different classifications and how is it diagnosed? Yeah, so HPPD, um, that's a big thing in a way uh, because it is one of the so-called after effects or possible after effects of hallucinogen ingestion. And um, uh, the uh, World Health Organization Diagnostic System, which is called the International Classification of Diseases, uh, version 10, uh, and it also includes psychiatric diseases. And uh, this um, package uh, includes a phenomenon which has been seen uh, in people which have ingested hallucinogenic drugs, mainly in recreational settings. It seems that these phenomena occur much less in controlled settings, but that's a different deal. So uh, this, the, the phenomenon itself is that you, after you have ingested in hallucinogen, you might experience an altered state of consciousness with different kind of features, alteration of time sense, alteration of visual perceptions, alteration of mood and, and uh, other things. And so uh, flashback means or HPPD type one, which is essentially a flashback phenomenon. It means you are maybe in the same circumstances where you took the drug initially three weeks later, and you might experience something quite similar because you're hearing the same music and uh, being together with the same people and stuff. So fragments or parts of the experience, experience which you have experienced or learned, if you want, uh, during the initial drug intoxication uh, might come up again and like a flashback, so a memory putting you back in the place or in the same uh, uh, space of phenomena which you experienced during the drug in intoxication. So it is defined as re-experiencing 
some features of the initial drug experience, but without having ingested any drug. So, and that's the point that here you experience phenomena which you have initially experienced during the drug intoxication, but they are very fleeting. We are going deeper into that uh, in a moment. So HPPD type two, which is not flashback phenomena, it's more a more clear thing which can be defined as an hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder. You can have that in a temporary fashion so that a flashback might show up in the same circumstances for usually just a few seconds. But it has been claimed, especially in the US, in the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, that there may be people out there which have an kind of especially visual perceptual disorder on a permanent basis. So they experience it in every second of their life, so to say, or in most hours of their life, so to say. So this is, you could think, that's a destruction in the brain morphology or, or the brain's uh, uh, cells or so, so that something might become disinhibited because of that or stuff like that. So, however, up to now, as Ben has mentioned, there's no proof for any cause and we are quite insecure what the cause is and even about the characteristics of the phenomena themselves. So do they really exist or not? There have been calculations about the type two, which say uh, it's it may be uh, that you find one person out of 150,000 users of hallucinogenic drugs, which might experience such a permanent visual uh, aberration of the per uh, perception. Um, however, it is very important that we put these things not in one part. So they are quite different because flashback phenomena usually go away after a few weeks or months. They got weaker and weaker and they are gone after a certain while and they are not dangerous. And usually people don't suffer from them. That's different if that HPPD thing really exists. Why do I question that? Different reasons for that. But a main reason is there are just a few cases really documented in the psychiatric literature. Let's say 50, you know, worldwide during the last 20 years. And so I'm a little bit skeptic one major feature of my skepticism is that we couldn't find any hint of a description of this visual aberration on a permanent basis in all the literature up to the 1980s. And so why couldn't we find it? Because the publications were much more, the observation of these patients, these recreational users were much more in the past, but we couldn't find any publication describing that. This is a thing that which... Is... Yeah, you know. that's very odd. And I mean, moving out of scientific literature, uh, to your knowledge, do you know of any reports or even, you know, accounts from personal experience of people reporting certain perceptual distortions like this? Yeah, I think um, uh, it is good to focus on these issues. But right now, I would prefer to go in a certain row forward uh, that we at first we should go into HPPD type 1 so the so-called flashback phenomena primarily primarily because it's a much more uh, uh, much uh, a much more occurring uh, um, phenomenon than HPPD type 2 
So we have, for example, I would say, uh, if you have used uh, hallucinogenic drugs drug five times, you might be able to easily re re-experience parts of these experiences. And so you could say that more than 99% of all HPPD phenomena, including type one and type two, are type one. And so it might be worth I see. Yeah. talking a little bit more about the HPPD type one, which is also accepted by the World Health Organization. So it's an internationally classified and accepted phenomena, which, which really exists somewhat. However, to, to start with that, uh, it is funny to know that there's no description in all the literature of a person self-describing, so to say, and flashback experience. How is so that? I mean, how do we then? How on earth do we know anything about it? Yeah, because they give these superficial descriptions, like, "Oh, I re-experienced parts of my drug experience," but that's it. There's no detailed description of it. This is not such a wonder to me personally, because I think that most of these flashbacks are just uh, seconds long, you know, and they have certain characteristics which, you know. Uh, however, even if it is just seconds, usually, you can have a much longer flashback. Why is that? This is because if you are getting intoxicated, for example, by the same drug, you might experience a much longer uh, flashback phenomenon. Uh, the usual thing is that people take LSD or psilocybin or the like, and then they have, an, let's say, problematic or anxiety-loaden uh, experience, and then they think, okay, let's go away from these experiences. So time is a factor. After six months, they say, okay, my anxieties are gone. No, I'm not. I'm not in fear anymore. But I wouldn't take LSD again. But they might uh, go and smoke cannabis. But cannabis can also induce a thing, uh, an alteration of your experience, which might remind the brain on your. Horrific uh, LSD experience, and so that might show up in the form of a flashback, and might make a much longer time until the cannabis intoxication is gone. And so, if you find description of longer flashbacks, they are usually induced by taking a similar drug, so to say. And that's that's very interesting. And is it a little bit similar to PTSD in the idea of where you're in a similar situation, or you might have a similar stimuli which causes this flashback? Yeah, that's a very good question and a good point, because flashback phenomena show up regularly, so to say, in virtually all cases of horror trips or anxiety loading trips. So and you could hypothesize that because people suffering from PTSD, they also have flashbacks if certain stimuli would show up in the environment or in their own psyche then they are kind of feeling like they are back in the original situation, so to say. And what we know is if you have experienced a traumatizing event, let's say an accident, you might, if you see another accident on the street two weeks later, you might go into your memory, they might come up even on an involuntary uh, basis, and so that's also called a flashback. So a memory which brings you back somewhat in your inner realm uh, into the original experience. And so if you have a traumatic trip, if you want, there is also a certain uh, um, um, uh, a certain memory there 
which can be brought up by similar, similar stimuli or even a similar state of your own set, so to say, your, your inner uh, um, uh, framework or so, you know. And so therefore, it can be induced as a PTSD phenomenon, so to say. If you're traumatized by the experience, there might be stimuli which can bring up the experience in a form of a flashback like memory where you are back in the original situation somewhat at least i see what you mean um and i suppose that segues us into a similar topic which would be looking at risk factors of course if you're happy to continue so i think it's probably quite clear then a horror trip or somehow some sort of bad experience may increase the probability of acquiring hppd do we know any other risk factors that may increase it yeah, there are there there was a lot of research on this phenomena in a way superficial, but they have found out some stuff, and uh, there are in the whole there are twenty four different uh, hypotheses about the etiology of these phenomena. However, as some people have hypothesized, for example, that they they are learning experiences, so you learn because of you took LSD or something, you learn how to be in an altered state. So your brain is more open to that kind of altered state. So it might be induced in a much more easier fashion than during the first trip. So one could hypothesize you have taken mushrooms 40 times, you might have an easier access to an altered state of consciousness, which might be also be easier to induce. However, there have been also hypotheses that you might have a, a, a flashback prone personality. So I don't believe in that that much. However, your ego strengths might be a factor. So if you have an, a low ego strength, then you might lose more easily control over your perception or about, uh, about the integration of your perception. What we know, for example, is that a lot of people, even if they induce the flashback phenomenon consciously for their pleasure, uh, they do that uh, preferably, uh, let's say, in front of a fire, drinking a beer, being a very relaxed position, and hearing the same music as on their last therapeutic or recreational session, which was positive. So they try to minimize ego controls by closing their eyes, going into a relaxed state, you know, being lazy in the evening, stuff like that. So it seems that ego controls over your perception and their integration might be a significant factor uh, bringing up these phenomena. This also leads me to another aspect of the experience. So usually the psychiatrists are about control, as the medical doctors are in general. You know, controlling your heart condition, controlling your smoking, controlling your whatever, you know, so they are about control. So they get panicked, especially psychiatrists, if something goes beyond your control. So they think it's very ter terrible if something happens to you in the experiential realm, which is not under your control. However, if you ask patients or recreational users, they will tell you more than 50%, oh, I induce these flashbacks for my pleasure. Even the, the, the patients in the uh, psycholytic or psychedelic therapies, they induce them by intention. So flashbacks are not per se negative. 
they are you, from the literature you could conclude half of them are pleasurable and a third of them are consciously induced so but this is not what the psychiatric literature will usually talk about and they will not give you a diagnosis if you say oh sometimes i have intense memories on my last pleasurable experience that's not an illness <laughs> yeah and uh, so, this, but this is very interesting. And usually, for example, patients in psychedelic or psycholytic therapy don't talk about them by themselves. So when I did my a study about them by designing a little questionnaire about flashback phenomena, when I worked with Hans Karl Leuner and the psycholytic therapy approach, so I interviewed 15 patients with my questionnaire. And I was very much astonished that kind of 75% of them have experienced flashback phenomena. Half of them experience them kind of regularly. But my, my advantage was that my questionnaire was a diff, little bit uh, differentiating and saying, was it positive, was it negative? So I found 80% had positive flashbacks. And was it controllable or not? 80% said it was easy to control. And then I was asking, did you do it intentionally? 80% did it intentionally. And then I was asking, was it hard to integrate these experiences? And more than 80% that perfect, no problem with them. You know, so I mean, this is the background, which are the background noise, if you want. We, but usually we just look in the forefront, it might be dangerous and so on. So another interesting effect is that the psychiatrists, especially in the 1960s, oh, flashbacks beyond your control. You might damage your car. You might fall down something because you're not aware of something because you're back in the framework of the drug experience. And that might be very dangerous. If you look, if there is anything documented in the literature about real dangers, you will find nothing. If you look, if it's really documented that people are suffering from these phenomena, you'll find a very, very little bit. So even the conventional psychiatrist didn't find real dangers and didn't find so many people suffering from it in their description, if you really look at them. Another thing is, uh, you, you might think, as people have done, for example, in Germany, completely crazy, the government or the, these agencies give you the driver's license. They said, 20 years ago, they said, oh, you smoked one joint? Oh, then, in your life, uh, then you might get flashbacks during car driving. So we don't, we, 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 um, we will get your driver's license away from you because of that. Because there is a certain risk that you might experience a flashback. First off, flashbacks in respect to marijuana intoxications are very rare. First off. The other thing is you really have to think about things. If you can have triggers, right, which can induce a flashback, same circumstances, same music, same drug, blah, 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 you know, same people, you might also find situations which you could say which are anti-triggers because you're very much in control of outer, the outer environment, having your steering wheel in your hands. You know, this is an anti-trigger situation. Nobody has ever reported getting a flashback during car driving. But, you know, these are the fantasies of the controlling doctors. <laughs> you know, oh, it could go beyond your control. You might produce an accident. There's no documentation about an accident ever in the whole literature. You know, there's no person falling down somewhere because of, you know, being in a 
dangerous situation and getting a flashback and we are not in control of reality anymore. That's all not true. The main thing is that the people don't realize that these phenomena are usually just last seconds. So even if you would have a two second flashback during car driving, nothing would happen because you're not able in two seconds to produce an accident. <laughs> not so easily, at least. Yeah. <laughs> that is very interesting. I mean, it's fascinating there that you say that the majority of these are not only almost deliberate, but enjoyable, right? However, that being said, if these are happening even to a small minority in a negative fashion, that's going to be problematic, especially if we start talking about the therapeutic side of, which I think we will come on to in a little bit. I just wanted to ask you a little bit. You said that some people might have this kind of flashback personality, or you said that you've refuted um, that type of thing. Do we know of any pre-existing vulnerabilities that seem to be associated with the onset of HPPD? Yeah, so um, we we are still with HPPD type one flashback phenomena, right? Sorry uh, to mention that again, but um, we have no systematic studies about that. But if you look at these etiological theories, so about the causation, these 24 theories, you will find that uh, less ego control over perception and the integration of perception. That might be a major factor. So you could say people with a good ego strength are less likely to get a flashback phenomena in comparison to the ones which might have not as much control over their experience because their ego is weaker. For example, borderline personality disorders could be in that direction. Not all of them, but some of them. So, But otherwise, we don't have systematic studies about HPPD type 1 in respect to that. Right. Fair enough. I mean, and I suppose this is almost a bit unrelated, but what does the participant population look like for people with type 1 HPPD? Is there a large group of people that we can investigate? Because I'm assuming this is probably quite rare. Yeah, and no, it is not rare, as I've mentioned. So I would calculate some 10% uh, of the more or less regular users of hallucinogenic drugs have experienced such phenomena. You know, so this is not really rare. It's not dangerous and it's going away. It's fading out, you know, usually. Yeah. You could, if you had a very strange bad experience on LSD, let's say, and you do cannabis a year later, that might still activate the stuff, you know. But otherwise, you the usual course is that people... Uh, if they had, for example, a bad experience, might be also a positive one, they might get flashbacks during the first few days, a few weeks, and then they're usually gone. I see. Some people I see. might have flashbacks for, let's say, a few months, but that's a maximum even. So therefore, there's also no specific treatment for, for these flashback phenomena. They, they will tell you, don't smoke cannabis, don't uh, produce the same kind of circumstances, don't hear the same music, don't go in a relaxed state with too many uh, stimuli which remind you on the former experience, stuff like that. They might also uh, tell you about the risk of ego-weakening situations, like falling asleep. Now, they might prescribe you a sleeping pill so that you don't experience a pre-sleep state, which might be also evocative of such a phenomenon and so on. But 
it is really hard to find people which suffer from flashback phenomena. What I and I, for example, I have looked out during the whole area of Hanover because I know a lot of people, psychiatrists, etc., and said, if you ever come across a person with a flashback, let's let us know. We will talk to the person and stuff. We talked to fifteen people. We found one person which had a HPPD type one. All the other stuff was a different kind of phenomenon even even the psychiatrists were saying oh it was a flashback but it wasn't so it's it's not easy to come across people suffering from uh, these kind of things in general i see and so i mean we've spoken a fair bit about hppd type 1 which is the one which the world health organization accepts as a disorder um but there's also another type of classification although it currently seems to be a little bit up in the air i'm not sure how i might describe it and that would be type 2 hppd so unless there's anything else you want to talk about with hppd type 1 you obviously tell us a little bit about the second type yeah Uh, so there's just one thing i would like to mention Uh, we have looked deeper into hppd type 1 and also about its causation we have found let's say 25 possible triggers or conditions not related to personality features which which might uh, contribute to induce such a phenomenon, such a flashback. And what we have found is that it seems that in every case, a different set of uh, triggers is involved. So every case has an individual set of triggers Why you are into that. It might be even differ in one person. In one situation, these five triggers might make it in another situation, seven other triggers might make it out of the 25, which we have found. And so our hypothesis at last was, okay, you have a multifactorial etiology individual for every person in every situation. It makes it more complex. But on the other side, you can easily, if you have this set of 25, you can easily analyze the situation and the inner set of the person for these features and come to the conclusion, okay, we had these and these and these and these triggers involved in this case, at this occasion. You know, I think that's important. And what is also important to know is that there, it seems that they're all psychoactive drugs, including barbiturates, amphetamines, and alcohol, can induce flashback phenomena and not just induce, they can also be followed by flashback phenomena or to a lesser degree, but it is the case. And it is also, and then I will conclude, um, it is also important to know that LSD seems to be the substance which can most easily induce these flashback phenomena as an after effect. Uh, Less so other drugs like DMT and the most least substance which induces flashbacks is psilocybin. You could think about that. Why is that? Because they are in a way quite similar. But it seems that psilocybin is much more receptor selective. So it means it goes mainly and virtually solely on the 5-HT2A receptor. So we could say, in a hypothesis could be that because it's not activating so much receptors, it might not as easily to let such, such flashbacks. Also with MDMA, flashbacks are much more rare. This might be due to the fact that the ego dissolution kind of direction of the experience is not there as much. I think these facts are important to mention. 
Thank you. Uh, it's very interesting. And I mean, so I'm assuming we'll discuss it very soon, but is the etiology or the suspected etiology of type 2 then different to type 1? Or is there some similarity and overlap? Yeah, there is a certain overlap, but let's, uh, I'll come back to that. But Yeah, let's, let's get into that in a minute. Do you want to give us a little introduction to type 2 yeah. HPPD? Okay. So HPPD type 2, uh, during the 1960s, uh, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, there was no report about constant or permanent visual aberration uh, produced by the ingestion of a hallucinogenic drug. That's a fact we have to register. However, in the 1980s, uh, some guy in the US named Henry Abraham worked in, in Boston, I think. He came up with some cases where he claimed that these people have visual aberrations or aberrations in their visual experiences uh, on a permanent basis, which have been induced by psychedelic drugs, especially LSD. It is interesting to know that this person was able to introduce Abraham has done research just on HPPD. He's not a big loading scientist. He has just focused on this thing and has just done research on that, just this phenomenon. However, he was able to introduce his hypothetical, I would say, disorder into the DSM-4 in the US. So how could that happen that one guy with just kind of anecdotal evidence is able to put his diagnostics, his diagnosis into such an important manual? Um, okay, I thought by myself, okay, if I would produce a publication saying, oh, here I have a subject who has taken a kind of drug and he had a very positive experience and his life pattern of life changed to the better. Let's publish this case. They would say, no, why should we? What are you thinking? We are. We are a scientific journal. We are not publishing anecdotal case reports, you know, especially not if it comes to positive effects of psychedelics. But if you would come up with a case with a strange aberration of visual perception on a permanent basis, suggesting dangerous through LSD, you will easily find a journal to publish that. This You could say that's a kind of yeah. publication bias if you want. So it was quite easy, it seems, to introduce a new danger induced by LSD, even if you're just one person. You could say, okay, if this guy is really serious and have conducted serious research on these people, you know, then you might say, okay, even if just that guy has found these things, we might take it serious. They did so. But there's not very much, much research, to not say nothing, to really confirm this hypothesis. And if you look, sorry if I'm a little bit kind of angry about it, but the funny thing is, if you look in these publications, he will say, oh, it's a very rare condition. But in the next publication, he says, oh, on my ward, I had 15 people having that. You think, <laughs> hmm, these are usual psychiatric population on his ward, and he had 15? You know, then you look deeper in the publication, you will find, Oh yeah, some of these were schizophrenics. Some had uh, developed them after getting electroconvulsive therapy. Some of these are that way and that way. Then you find, okay, okay. A lot of comorbidities means other diseases going on in these people and even psychosis, which can go along with easily with visual aberration and that kind of hallucinatory features. So 
you can find a lot of questionable stuff in these publications, even suspicious statistical procedures, if he has done some. And so therefore, it could be very much questions if that, from a scientific perspective, if that phenomenon really exists. However, uh, during the last 20 years, other authors came up with kind of similar cases. And so people have taken this diagnosis more serious and serious. I myself, as I might have mentioned in another podcast, I'm in the field since 35 years. So I've been contacted by a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people. I was a, pro a professor and, and psychiatrist at a big medical school, seeing a lot of people in the emergency room and so on. So I should have seen these. No, I've not seen them as cases in the usual treatment scenario, but I have been contacted as a kind of expert in hallucinogens about about these phenomena by people which claimed that they suffer from it. What I've the people what I've seen, they were psychopathological, really heavy cases, but not because of the visual aberrations, but in a lot of other respects. So they might have been anxiety prone. They show more dissociative phenomena than the usual person. They have sometimes they had derealization phenomena where you do feel like the reality character of your perception is sucked out. So you're still there with your per perceptions, but they are not real. They can't be taken for real by you. And that's a very alien, alien perception, but that has not per se to do with your last LSD trip, but you it might remind you on that. You might have that condition caused by another cause, than the LSD trip, but you might put it together. Oh, it feels a little bit like an LSD trip. Then you go to your psychiatrist and he thinks, oh, what's that? You know, And then you say, yeah, it feels like on my LSD trip. And then he say, oh, that's HPPD type two. You know? And then you're getting gut, gut with your diagnosis, even if it came from other reasons. And so um, I think that the, the persons which I've seen with this condition, they might count into the 20s, not that much, but some, and they all had a lot of other psychopathological features. And so we might be back at what Ben has asked about the pre-personality or, or pre-personality predisposition. The people which have a lot of comorbidities are much more vulnerable to that condition. And in a lot of cases, however, it's still very questionable if it has been caused by LSD. For example, a lot of them will tell you, oh, six months after my last LSD trip, this condition showed up. So then as a scientist you and a doctor, you might think, okay, six months later, is there really a connection? Is it really caused by it? Because if Abraham, that scientist, is right, that there might be destructive effects by LSD on certain population of neurons in your brain, which are responsible for inhibiting parts of your perceptual processes, if that's really true, you it can't go away. And it usually even that condition goes away after a while. But uh, it might be also, you, you should see it more often than just in one out of 150,000. However, this uh, the problem is bigger from a scientific perspective. Because for exa example, my friend Matthew Baggett, has done an online survey. I'm an old fashioned sci uh, scientist, so I don't believe in <laughs> online uh, surveys, 
for principal reasons, because in a scientific, on a, viewed from a scientific point, they are really having so much vulnerabilities and problems that you don't better use them. However, he made a survey about visual aberrations in general about psychedelic drug users which are able to participate and want to participate in his survey. These are very unreliable data, at least I would say, and he found a lot of these phenomena. You know, However, if you look deeper in the literature, you'll find the study conducted by the Society for Psychical Research, which is a society about looking for parapsychological and other unusual psychological phenomena. So this society made a survey in, 19, in 1897 with 25,000 participants kind of impossible at the time. However, they sent out letters repeatedly and stuff like that. So they came up and they were serving hallucinatory phenomena in general, visual, acoustical, hearing voices, seeing uh, people which, are, which have died a while before, stuff like that. They found that 80% of the population's population have these unusual perceptual phenomena, even visual aberrations and all that stuff. They don't talk about it. You might say, okay, in the 19th century, whatever they have had there. However, this society was smart. So they repeated, they replicated their survey with exactly the same questions 70 years later, found the same results. So even a usual human has a lot of aberrant perceptual phenomena, which people usually don't talk about it, but if they really think about these kind of things, they, if they are in front of a questionnaire, especially 50 years ago when not so much social media and other absorption devices were around, they might really find out, okay, I had these strange perceptions. I don't talk about it. I don't take them as serious, but they are there. So also this has to be uh, in our background if we are talking about alterations of our perceptual world by different means, you know maybe hallucinogenic drugs. However, if we take the phenomenon serious, uh, we might say, okay, there are certain people which are vulnerable to perceptual alteration, even on a permanent basis. And they can be induced maybe by hallucinogenic drugs as another factor which might break through your stability in your perceptual world and alter it in a more constant way. Interesting also is that meanwhile, HPPD type two is not just visual aberrations, which make the main part of it, but it's also about derealization, chronic anxiety states, and all these kind of things, you know. But however, the bouquet is not as full as with the flashback phenomena where you can experience the whole experience again with all the alterations, acoustically, uh, uh, visually, uh, time perception, space perception, uh, derealization, ego dissolution, everything, you know, in a positive as well as in a negative way. So this is difference which, with HPPD type two. And now we could, if you would introduce a question about it, we could talk a little bit about our study. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so just to reiterate what you said, right, it seems like there's, it's a lot more complicated in working out whether HPPD type 2 is directly related to the psychedelic and could perhaps involve comorbidities and also perhaps is much more common than we may think about on an everyday basis.
But as you said, uh, we're now going to take a look at a journal titled A Review of Hallucinogen Persisting Perception Disorder and an exploratory study of subjects claiming symptoms of HPPD, published by Torsten and colleagues in 2018. This paper features an exploratory study uh, in order to gather information about participants reporting HPPD-like symptoms in order to better understand the role of demographic, drug use history and other factors that may be related to their perceptual disturbances. So Torsten, can you tell us about the main findings of this study and perhaps how you conducted it as well? Yeah, uh, sure. So it was uh, initially, how could I say, initiated by a person suffering from HPPD, in fact. So this person was financing uh, a researcher or two at Harvard Medical School uh, Psychiatry Department, which I was part of at, at that time, uh, uh, to explore people which claim to have symptoms of HPPD type 2. Uh, and so we have investigated and examined these people in the laboratory at Harvard Medical School, having conducted personal interviews with them and doing some tests with them, especially in respect to comorbidities, because it became obvious during the first explorations of the first subjects that they had a lot of comorbidities on board. So what were these? As I've mentioned, they are usually uh, quite heavily uh, um, uh, impacted by psychological instabilities. They might have dissociative phenomena, which we see with people having PTSD. If they get an uh, aversive stimuli, they might kind of freeze in themselves. They can't move anymore or stuff like that. It might be also just that they go out of their emotions completely, stuff like that. These are dissociative phenomena. We have found that in the population very much. And to our uh, astonishment, we also found that a lot of them, I would say two thirds of these people claiming visual aberrations after the ingestion of an hallucinogenic drug had these phenomena before they took the drug. That was especially <laughs> astonishing. So they say themselves claimed, oh, it might have been induced by LSD because nobody could find a reason why they had these kind of things. And with a lot of these things, visual snow, floaters, where you have some perceptual kind of like a few bubbles going this way in your visual field, kind of, you know, yeah, it's just altering the visual perception to a certain degree, but you can still see some things or, or you can still see the whole picture and you can still read, but it's a little bit disturbing if something is going that way. It's transparent, but it's still a visual aberration and stuff. So... A lot of these things are known in ophthalmology, which is the science or the physician specialized in, in alterations of the eye and, and the eye's uh, uh, sinus processing, right? So that was astonishing. Um, we couldn't find any case that might have been also by selection of our subjects because they were self-selecting, right? Uh, but, uh, we couldn't find any case where the people had no comorbidity. Really? It's also interesting. We could yeah. hypothesize in favor of HPPD type 2 that the vulnerability has to be there for that kind of damage on a permanent basis. So people which might have already have a lot, lot of psychopathological symptoms on board and maybe even an altered personality somewhat, anxiety prone, dissociation prone, whatever, that they might be more vulnerable to that condition or to that 
hallucinogen intake, which might induce this phenomenon. But my colleague, to be honest, Professor John Harburn, was more in favor of HPPD type 1, that it really exists, but I was less so. But I would say, if we look at it like an addition of vulnerabilities, so to say, then you might might find a very rare very rare you might very rarely find people which can be damaged by an hallucinogen intoxication in that way. So that I would leave that as an option or a hypothesis which might be real, you know. But otherwise, we have to be very skeptical about it. However, why we are skeptical? There's another reason for that not just Abraham's research, please look really into it. If you have a, a good knowledge about science, you will go a little bit like, oh man, you know. However, what is also interesting, so what do physicians do if some patients show up with a condition which they have no idea of really, and then they the patients say, oh, doctor, please give me any treatment, prescribe me something which might help me and blah, 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 you know. Then the physicians, they are, how expected to do so, uh, will try some medications on you. Maybe some medication which is not that giving you so much side effects and it's not really dangerous or so. Like carbamazepine, for example, you might think, oh, that feels a little bit like an overstimulation of the brain, like an epilepsy. So I give you an epileptic, anti-epileptic drug for, let's try it. So interestingly enough, we know about, let's say, 50 cases which have been treated by medications. You'll find five which profit from an anti-epileptic drug, 10 others which did not. You will find 15 people profiting from an anti-anxiety drug like a benzodiazepine. You will find another 15 not profiting from a benzodiazepine. You know, Then you might do a neuroleptic drug, an antipsychotic drug, because it hurts. It it feels a little bit like a psychotic symptom symptomatology, so you give them an antipsychotic drug. You will find five people again which have profited from that somewhat, and fifteen others which have not. So if you have a straightforward etiology, it means the same causation or cascade of causations. You should expect that a lot of more more profit uh, people might profit in a more consistent format from these medications. We haven't seen that. However, there is a tendency that more people profit from anti-anxiety drugs than from the other ones. So there is a, right now, there is a building up consensus that if you have a person that way, might be more profit from an anti-anxiety drug. So if you look, has an anti-anxiety drug any influence on perception on a visual perception? No. Why do they profit? However, it's a complex matter. You might think, okay, then it might help the inhibitory centers in your brain to inhibit perceptual processing a little bit more. However, you get very much accustomed to the effects of benzodiazepines quite easily. But they claim that they profit on a longer time. So that is also, you know, there's so much illogical things going on. This is sometimes the case, however, we know from history of science, medical science, you know, first off, you are very kind of, um, how should I say, immersed in insecurities, you know, later on, you might find more consistent 
feature of a certain disease or a complex of diseases. And in this case, I would like to talk about a complex of subdiagnostic groups, so to say, which we are not as much knowing about. It sounds immensely complicated and seems like the verdict is still very, very, yeah, still out there. Um, now, particularly in type 2 uh, HPPD, you mentioned there seems to be this relationship or comorbidity with other psychiatric disorders. Um, now, obviously, psychedelic assisted therapies have been getting increasing media attention for their use as treatment for mood disorders. Um, now, if these are perhaps risk factors, what sort of problems might type 2 HPPD present in order for the mainstreaming of psychedelic therapies? Yeah, that could be a serious problem. I think personally, especially if it comes to uh, um, to um, insurance agencies, which might see another risk in these new therapies because you could damage the brain permanently, so to say. Uh, however, with all or yeah, with virtually all other medications, we see that too, that in a very few cases, you might do a damage on a permanent basis because of certain vulnerabilities might be that the person had had few strokes before. So there is a heightened vulnerability in respect to brain damage, stuff like that. I mean, with other medications. And so the insurance company might say, okay, if it's one out of a hundred thousand, we don't care, you know, because it's so rare, we can get that risk done easily. That might be true. On the other side, I, as a therapist, I would be not happy if I would damage a person permanently, especially if it comes to psychotherapies, which usually don't do that, especially not in, in respect to brain damage. And so um, what I would wish for is that we could find out more about this condition, which is not so easy because so rare if it exists. And um, we, if we could find out about predisposing factors, so that we could say, okay, this person might have a special vulnerability for that. And so we could exclude these patients, like we do with somatic diagnosis. If we could see the brain damage, which he, the patient had before, we would not give him a stimulant drug, for example. So it's kind of the same thing. However, not so easy to find these predisposing factors, but if we have an anxiety-prone person with some dissociative phenomena, which visual aberrations, we might think, okay, that might be not the best candidate. And you are right asking that question, especially because in the experimental trials, what we are doing right now about these new experimental kind of therapies, psychedelic psycholytic therapies, there we screen out a lot of the population because they these uh, the the entrance criteria do not allow for serious organic condition not for smoking not for this not for that so at last you are treating an unrealistic population and exclude dangers which might show up later on because then you are treating the more vulnerable individuals or patients <clears throat> and then you might come up with these side effects and this is why uh, usually uh, pharmaceutical companies observe their medications and what happens to the patients for quite a longer while than just the experimental trials. You know, if it's business as usual at last and marketed, you know, the drug and the treatment, then they still have what they call pharmacovigilance and looking over 
uh, and getting responses from physicians, oh, this patient's develop, patient developed that, but he has a kidney disease and blah, 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 so that they come across more about these uh, potential uh, side effects which just might happen with certain comorbidities. And so I personally think that the danger right now is not as much. However, if you give higher doses, it is for sure so that the brain's state is more altered and can be more easily experienced flashbacks. I would hypothesize at least. We don't have real numbers about that. And it is also interesting that there are two guys which are the major proponents of these therapeutic approaches in the past. One is still alive, Stanislav Grof, very well known for his theoretical work and stuff, but he was a very experienced person. The other one is Hans Karloiner, the, the um, uh, professor of psychosomatics in Germany, who was a leader in psycholytic therapy in Europe. These guys have both done quite a lot of experience in patients and therapies. And they, interestingly, came up with the following etiological or ca causal theory about these phenomena, not HPPD2, we are back at HPPD1, flashback phenomena. So if you experience a certain traumatic event from the past and have a scenic hallucination about it or so, and you're into a process of suffering from that again and maybe getting into grief and crying and stuff like that, if that cannot be completed during one session, because you're just on a short-acting drug, for example, then you might still have that thing on board as a not non-completed Gestalt, as it was called in the past. So you're kind of getting a break in the middle of in, into it or so. Then the pressure for getting into re um, getting re-exposed to the experience or going back into the experience again to complete it, the cathartic re-experience, that might be a predisposition to experience flashback afterwards. So what is their way of handling these features? They said, okay, if the patient has stabilized again, do another session to complete the experience and then the flashbacks will be gone. And that is also in, uh, interesting to look at the experience what I made. So we had one guy in Loiner's office who just came for complications after effects after had, having an LSD experience where he lost control completely and was not able to integrate that experience afterwards, which made him very anxious during the experience. So what did Leuner do? He said, okay, you can come for a treatment. So we explored him, then he came the next day for a session. What did Leuner do? He gave him a very small drug of a masculine derivative, short acting. So what did this guy experience? He had two sessions. In both sessions, he re-experienced the initial trip to a certain degree. I mean, quite holistically. And afterwards, because he was in control of the experience because of the low dose, he re-experiences under his he re-experienced it under his control, complete control, and he was freed from it. Loina called that the soft trip treatment. <laughs> I found it quite fascinating. That's, 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 that's very, very interesting. It's a very interesting hypothesis. Yeah. yeah uh, also, is... another, uh, just, a, uh, just a hint of another uh, point. So 
during the course of conventional psycholytic treatment, which is a series of treatment with lower doses in the framework of psychoanalytic or uh, other conceptual frameworks. So the people have repeated sessions, let's say 10 to 20 to get rid of their symptoms. You might experience if you do them in a weekly way or two weekly, so these short distances, the people might experience a weakening of their ego strengths. And then you might also see more flashback phenomena coming up. A simple way to, to, to uh, a simple solution for that is that you uh, extend the, the space in between the sessions so that the people can restabilize again, the ego might get stronger again, and then you can do the next session and don't experience that anymore. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah. Just before we move on to the final question or two, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you wanted to mention about from the study. Yeah, um, it was interesting. I've also already mentioned that, that we came out with different um, kind of opinions, my colleague and mine. Yeah. So he was saying, okay, Torsten, that phenomena really exists. And I said, I'm still in doubt. However, uh, we came to the conclusion that the vulnerability and the the addition, so to say, multiple vulnerabilities might lead to a sensitivity that you can induce a pathological condition with just a low dose or a dose of a hallucinogenic drug. And so I think we also came to a serious conclusion. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you very much for that, Torsten. So it's the final question I wanted to ask you because it's still clear that future research is needed in this area. What are the key questions that are going to be the most important in understanding HPPD uh, for the future and what type of studies may be needed to help elucidate these answers? Yeah, very good question. So uh, I would be in favor of uh, doing these kind of systematic studies of people claiming HPPD. Uh, first off, I would filter them uh, in respect to their uh, psychopathological symptoms and the constellation of them, and also in respect to their personality features, so that we might find subgroups, as we, that is also one hypothesis out of our study, that there might be subgroups. It's also suggested by the different working of the different medications. And so then, through the internet, we could collect these people, but we have to really see them and diagnose them as professional psychiatrists and researchers so that we can structure the, the, the patient groups. And then I, I would look for, out for comorbidities as well as psychophysiological features. So are these people more res responsive to anxiety provoking stimuli, for example, which are, we can find genetically predisposed in rats, rats which are more anxious by nature, by their constitution, by their genetic outfit, and others which are less so. So I would look out for these kind of features. If people react to psychophysical stimuli or stimulation experiments in a certain way, one researcher also active with psilocybin in the past was also looking about taste acuity. You know, if people are more taste sensitive than others, for example, and also he looked out for the variability, the standard deviation 
in respect to some psychophysical experiments. And I would look for these kind of things to find out more about the predisposing conditions, so to say. I don't believe as much into uh, putting people in a scanner and looking out for different connectivity because you have so much variation in respect to different individuals anyway that you might have a hard time to find out something specific specific in this tiny population you know and it could be also interesting to filter these people claiming symptoms of hppd type 2 uh, to filter out people which have it in a more heavy fashion or in a more stronger way or or harder uh, more difficult to treat way and people which have it on a softer and we could also sort out these groups and try to find distinctive features of these groups. And to come back to HPPD type one, I think personally there's no research necessary anymore because on these fleeting phenomena, we know enough, I think. We might look out for it in the uh, people uh, treated therapeutically with hallucinogenic drugs, how often it appears, if they suffer from it, how much, if it's just second wise or if it's longer, stuff like that. So looking out for dangers or risks or complications in a very sensitive fashion, even for these after effects, so that we can give them a risk uh, um, assessment, so to say, you know, but I don't think that that is a serious problem in respect to treating patients uh, right Lovely. now. Yeah. Lovely. Well, um, I wanted to ask any final remarks, Torsten, before I sign off today. Yeah, they're always good to really look into the literature, not getting diagnoses as they are there. And especially if it comes to the work of Abraham, uh, look at these things. He might have discovered something for real. I'm a little skeptical about it, but maybe true. But the studies which he has conducted are really, yeah, very weak. And so this is my general um statement, uh, be critical, look at the literature, don't look at two publications, look at 20 at least about the phenomenon and also about HPPD type 1. And at best, look at all of them. There are 150. It's not that much, but, you know, and um, hopefully we can publish our book uh, in the English language so that it is accessible to a larger population to get a critical idea about the phenomena, especially HPPD1 type 1, and how it is caused, and so that we can go further by evaluating all these causative theories, which we have presented in our book, uh, to, to get a real thing uh, done in respect to the causation, at, at least of most of these phenomena. That's some fantastic advice and some even better insight. Thank you so much, Torsten. In yeah, today's episode you. of the Psychedelic Frontiers podcast, we talked about HPPD, Hallucinogen Persisting Perception Disorder. We took a look at a paper co-authored by our guest, Dr. Torsten Passu, including a review and study on HPPD and discussed its potential significance in the future of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and your preferred streaming platform to keep up to date with new episodes. More information can be found in this event's description, including a link to Torsten's book and the paper we reviewed today. That's all for now. Thank you so much and take care.